Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for CEO Exclusive, brought to you by Anona Enterprises. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to CEO Exclusive, where we get emerging trends from CEOs and their most trusted advisors. On today's show, I'm excited to have Michael Blake, who's going to talk to us today about valuations. I'm very excited to hear about uh, trends and valuations in 2015. So, Mike, uh, can you go ahead and tell us what's happening from your perspective? Yeah, uh, so th- good morning and thanks for having me on. So, um, uh, yeah, in, in terms of, of valuations and how that kind of translates into a practical knowledge, um, I think something that uh, not enough business owners or potential business owners are paying attention to is the opportunity to buy businesses. Um, I can't tell you how many people I run into and they're, they're frustrated that their businesses are stagnating or even people, you know, that are, are former high level executives that are in transition and they're spending months or years trying to find that next new position. And I, I kind of stop them in their tracks and say, why are you waiting for somebody to hire you? Just go out and buy a darn business. There are tons of them out there. There's tons of money for you to buy those businesses. Instead of waiting for somebody to hire you, go hire yourself. So how is this relevant for, let's say, a middle market CEO with a company that's between five to a hundred million in revenue who are, those are our listeners? Yeah. So, um, the bad news from the buyer side is that valuations are high. Um, and that's because the Fed would like them to be high. They are not printing money. That's a misnomer, but they're making money very cheap and they're, they, they don't want the banks to hang on to it. So that means that there's a lot of dollars chasing not a lot of assets out there. When you have that supply and demand, it's going to push up prices. But um, what we're also seeing is because of that and because of demographic trends, you are seeing more businesses available for sale, I think, than we've seen in quite some time. And so are you suggesting that a middle market CEO would pursue some sort of acquisitive strategy versus um, organic growth, and you would you would you would think that that's a a trend, and that's a b recommendation that you would make. Yeah, I I, I think it's a trend, uh, one that is um, underrated and underutilized. I think there are more acquisitions to be made, and I do think that not enough CEOs think about buying a business as part of their strategy. And so, as you as we relate this to valuations, um, you did say that valuations are tending to be high. Uh, wouldn't you? Wouldn't that mean that they should maybe wait until valuations come down before they look at acquiring? Because you know you want to buy when things are cheaper, right? Well, you want to buy when things are cheaper, but you don't want to sell when things are cheaper, right? That's the problem. If we remember back to the bad old days of 2008 and 2009, the um, uh, the, the M and A market came to a screeching halt, right? And investment bankers actually wound up starting to do my business and business valuation because they could not find deals to do. So they did the one thing they absolutely did not want to do was get into the business valuation business to generate fees and keep and keep the lights on. Um, uh, so when when prices are low, you're just not going to see the supply of businesses available for sale if people can hang on to them. So this is the time to grab when when many investment bankers and other advisors are telling business owners now's a good time to sell, now's the timing because now you're going to have the availability of businesses to buy. And not just the lower quality ones that are, frankly, always for sale because somebody wants to get rid of them, but the higher quality businesses that are a durable, viable asset that can add long-term value to the company. So in general, what kind of a lift are you seeing uh, or a premium are you seeing CEOs get when they decide to go and buy a company versus trying to pursue organic growth? 
Well, um, it, it's it's hard to say because when you're in the middle market, you're not publicly traded, right? So it's not like the the company suddenly, the, the market suddenly revalues you. In fact, financial theory and empirical evidence suggest that when a company, when one company acquires another, market prices actually go down in the short term because of what's called the insider effect. And the insider effect suggests that. When a company agrees to be, the market assumes that the selling company knows more about itself than the buying company does. And therefore, by definition, every acquisition is an act of the seller pulling the wool over the eyes of the buyer. So from the, from a short term perspective, the argument goes that you're actually risking value to your company by making an acquisition. Um, but I think that's a short term phenomenon. It's, it's hard to observe. Um, but, Anytime that you have an opportunity as a middle market company to get bigger, that in itself has a chance to give you higher value because the comp the, the market um, absolutely and very concretely uh, discounts companies the smaller that they are. So the larger you can become, just by a size effect, you make yourself more valuable. And are you finding that a lot of these acquisitions actually work and deliver on that promise? Because at least in the the press and what I've seen, acquisitions are very, it's very difficult to get them to work. Yeah. You know, it's funny. Um, uh, my experience has been very different. Um, and I don't think that's anything unique to me. I think it's just a different viewpoint. Um, the, the conventional theory is that acquisitions more often than not don't work because buyers are stupid. Buyers are egomaniacs that just want to build empires and they just spend shareholder money or bank money to build empires. Um, I'm not sure that that's necessarily true. I've seen many instances where the, the, the deals have been quite good, right? And in fact, Warren Buffett makes, makes his claim to fame on making pretty good acquisitions. It's all about the discipline behind the acquisition. It's not so much that I think Warren Buffett, to take an example, is that much smarter than everybody, but I do believe that he is far more disciplined than everybody. And so tell us a little bit about what you think those disciplines are and what they involve. You know, Warren Buffett um, consistently says, and I'm quoting him like I'm some sort of disciple. I'm actually not, although I come to appreciate him more as I get older. Um, he just is not interested in technology companies because he doesn't understand it. And that's a, what a great motto for any investment, whether you're buying a company or buying a stock or you're buying a CD. If you don't understand what you're buying, why the heck are you buying it, right? Um, the, the second issue, less important for middle market companies, is that um, uh, there's no compulsion to buy. Larger companies have a compulsion to buy, right? You ever hear of companies that have like a business development or corporate development, executive corporate development department, right? What does that mean, right? That means their job is to go out and find companies to buy, what happens if they stop buying companies? That person gets fired that or person goes away. Exactly right, right? So now that person can make the argument, well, I've done a great job for you because what I've done is I've avoided the potholes, right? I, I avoided lots of bad deals. Well, that's not how the real world works. The real world works based on, quote, production and on positive acquisition. So for larger, for the larger publicly traded companies or even privately traded companies that have these departments, purposes to make acquisitions, they're going to find acquisitions to make because even if they screw up, right, you're not going to know if they screw up for at least a year or maybe two. So if nothing else, that gives you more runway 
to keep your great job, your great, well-paying, high-prestige job um, until somebody figures out that you screwed up. And even if you have screwed up, by then you may have the opportunity to make a deal that actually is very good. So there's a real agency cost. If you're in the middle market, which is your target market and mine, you got a CEO, you might have a CFO or director of finance. You don't have these people that, that have a vested interest in making sure that you keep acquiring stuff. And therefore, I think those acquisitions tend to work better because there isn't this group of people that want to acquire at all costs. There's, a, there's one less impetus to be undisciplined. Okay. And what are some of the other disciplines? Um, so the other, another discipline is not inventing synergy. Now, synergy is important. It's increasingly recognized. Um, but uh, th there's a tendency, particularly for buyers, once they get down a path of buying a company, that they don't want to have wasted five, six, seven months of time to make sure that that and, and find out that deal does not happen. And the reason the deal might fall apart is because over time, there's a disconnect between the price that's being paid and the value that's being transferred, right? And so in order to keep that deal alive, if you can't make the price change, which you often can't because once you set that expectation of the seller, it's awfully hard to get them to move off that, particularly if they're not under any compulsion to sell. Um, then what you have to do is you have to invent value. You have to rationalize, okay, why does it make sense to pay this price? Okay, we'll have some operational synergies here. We can leverage up. Um, uh, maybe we can get some capital structure synergies over here. And some of those may materialize, but, but more often they don't. And that's where you get into trouble because you're then, you're so far along in the deal, you want to get that deal done. Oh, and by the way, there's often an investment banker involved in the deal. And I can tell you that because I used to be one. Um, you only get paid if the deal gets done, right? So you don't, it takes an extraordinary advisor who's funded on commission to tell somebody to walk away from a deal in the client's best interest. Just doesn't happen. I can tell you where I worked, that would have been a fireable offense. Um, so there's a, once you get that deal going, you're down the road. There's so many, there's so much momentum that pushes that deal towards a conclusion, like it or not. The farther you get along, the harder it is to maintain that discipline and put on the emergency brake or be that one person, the one guy or gal on the team that says, wait a second, this makes no sense. We need to stop this right now and reassess. So when you say don't invent synergy, that means, you know, how do you begin to see that the synergy isn't there if he invested in closing? So this is the CEO owner person whose money is really on the line. Yep. How do, how does that person remain objective or introduce some objectivity into that process? That's one question. And the second question is about this, the price setting. Yep. Um, because it seems to me like if, if what you're saying is true, then, then there's more information that the CEO would like to have had involved in that price setting process that they didn't get until too late in the, in the deal. Right. So um, it's all about the discipline of due diligence, and it's all about the discipline of, of doing your homework. Um, deals fail because there are gaps in information. And sometimes there are gaps that management, maybe not even the CEO, maybe somebody just doesn't want to see, again, because they really want that deal to get done. Um, or maybe it's gaps because uh, an acquirer is penny wise and pound foolish. You know, the thing about middle market companies is that they may not be used to doing acquisitions. They may not be used to hiring high powered professional advisors. If they're up to a 20, $30 million company and they've gotten along with a great 
general corporate counsel attorney who charges three fifty, three ninety five an hour. Um, they don't see the need, or they get sticker shock shock when they say when they see that in order to vet a ten million dollar acquisition. Maybe you need to drop 20 grand on a due diligence exercise. Maybe you need to insist they have an audit and you help pay for it. Maybe they don't, they don't see the, or they don't see the value or they can't, they can't bring themselves to pay ten, fifteen thousand $15,000 for an appraisal on a deal that they don't know is going to close because they don't understand all that is insurance, right? But not everybody buys insurance. So, that's the biggest pitfall is when you decide that you're going to just close your mind to all the information necessary to make a fully informed transaction. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, how, so you're saying that the CEO needs to get all this information and be willing to, to see this information, assess it objectively and act on it um, versus closing their eyes to it. And not over delegate. Mm-hmm. How do they make sure that they get this information early enough so that they're not setting a price that's too high? So uh, it's, it's up to the leadership and, and the culture of the company, right? And culture comes from leadership. So if you have a culture where you're kind of fly by the seat of your pants, you and I both know there are companies that are very successful and they're run by folks that are very street smart, but don't, you know, they might have, may not have even finished high school, let alone have a business degree or accounting training, right? They're making money hand over fist. And for people like us with, you know, with um, kind of more formalized backgrounds, it's like an anti-case study. It's like, this should not be happening. It's an alternate <laughs> reality. Spock with the beard does not make any sense, right? But it, it works for them. Somebody like that is very hard to convince that, all of a sudden they need to have that discipline because their entire success has been built on gut instinct, taking advantage of deals when they happen, not letting opportunity pass by and trying to make it knock twice. Um, it's hard to convince somebody to change their way unless they've been burned badly by doing that. On the other hand, if you have somebody with a mentality that they like to make decisions based on fact, um, those are great individuals and great companies to take advantage of this because the CEO probably has put in place a, a management team and a culture that says, you know what, we're not making big decisions based on the seat of our pants. We want to have information. We want to ask questions. We have a, and you know, uh, hopefully they even have a culture that says, um, we're not going to do a deal unless everybody is on board, that every question has been answered even if we don't like the answer, at least we go into it with our eyes wide open so we know the risk that we're undertaking and we price it accordingly. How does a CEO go about setting a budget for a, a deal or a deal team? Because I, I, that's one thing that I think would be very helpful is to set expectations for how much they do need to pay to get this done and to do it properly. Yeah, so um, you know, it's, it's, it's not unreasonable to have somewhere between uh, 1% to 3%, excluding brokerage fees, you know, pay 1% to 3% of the deal value in fees to vet that deal, right? So you think about it, 1% to 3% insurance on a potentially catastrophic occurrence. And that's to vet one transaction. That's right. So if they decide they're not going to do that one and they've gotten all the way into due diligence, when they do the next one, they're back looking at another 1% to 3%. Well, that's true. But you know, deals don't go badly if you overpay by one, two percent, right? You overpay by one, two percent. That's statistical noise. Who cares? Deals go badly when you overpay by 50 percent, 
70%, right? That's like HP buying autonomy. Um, that's how CEOs get fired and never get hired again. That's what you're buying the insurance against. Hmm. Just to turn things a little bit more to the nuts and bolts of valuation, I would love to know what kinds of valuations you're seeing in terms of like what's hot, what's seeing a lot of transaction volume. Um, what are the multiples that you're seeing in different kind of the big industries that are kind of in the news now? I would love to know that. Okay. So uh, interestingly, we don't hear about it a whole lot. But for the last five years, financial firms have dominated the M&A marketplace at almost all size levels. And the reason for that is because of Dodd-Frank regulations, basically, and rolling back uh, parts of the Glass-Steagall Act. There are, there are companies that realize that they simply can't, their banks in particular and other financial services companies realize that, that the overhead of compliance with those regulations is so high now that they simply cannot achieve the scale and make an acceptable return on their equity as a standalone entity. So they're putting themselves up for sale. Um, or they're seeking acquisition, again, for the same reason. They've got to scale up. Otherwise, um, uh, all the paperwork, all the regulatory requirements, it just simply doesn't make sense to them to be in business because they wind up being in business. Their primary business becomes compliance rather than serving clients. And so... Um, uh, that area is very active. You're also seeing a lot of spinouts in that area. There are, comp there are companies and banks that are saying, you know what, we don't want to be in X business anymore because it's too risky. Uh, it's not a good fit with our culture. Um, the compliance risk is too high. The compliance cost is too high. So we'd rather let somebody else have that business. Um, for example, case in point, um, UBS is no longer going to be a primary underwriter of European bonds anymore. They just don't want to do it. They don't want to deal with the Greeces of the world. They don't want to deal with the Portugals of the world. They don't want to deal, God, they don't want to deal with the Ukraines of the world, that's for sure. Um, so they're, they're not going to be in the business anymore. Now, I don't think they're going to shut that down. I think they're going to sell it to somebody else who wants to do it. Um, but, um, you know, you're seeing a lot of, you're seeing a lot of musical chairs happening in the financial services industry. Um, technology, of course, remains hot, is always hot. Everybody wants to be the new Oculus Rift and the new WhatsApp. Uh, the new Minecraft that's going to go for a mind-blowing valuation that just on the surface doesn't seem to make any sense. Um, they do you just have to think about value differently, but uh, technology continues to be acquired um, uh, because it's hard to think of it's hard to think of stuff. It's hard to think of new stuff, particularly stuff that's truly new as opposed to as opposed to being incremental. Um, you're what, kind of, what kind of multiples are you seeing? So, um, if, if we're talking about kind of just on size, it's kind of interesting. If you're in the zero to $25 million value space, so at the low end of the middle market, so to speak, um, there's a very tight band of between, on average, again, mileage may vary, right? But a tight band of four and a half to five and a half times EBITDA multiples. As you get larger, particularly in technology, as you get over $250 million, and that seems to be kind of the threshold when you get from middle market to large market M&A, um, you're, you're, it's not uncommon if it's a, a strong company to see EBITDA multiples in excess of 10 to 12. Hmm. And what about healthcare? Well, um, when you say healthcare, do you mean providing healthcare or healthcare infrastructure? Let's, let's take both, but let's start with providers and then um, infrastructure. Okay, so... 
interestingly, um, I don't do a lot of healthcare evaluation, but I do just enough to stay current. Uh, healthcare provider valuations are down across the board. And the reason for that is, frankly, that doctors are, uh, they just don't want to be in business by them, for themselves under the Affordable Care Act anymore. Um, the, smaller, the smaller practices really struggle to survive. Many of them are deciding whether or not they're going to continue accepting Medicare patients, and they're taking that a step further. If enough practices stop accepting Medicare per patients, it's only a matter of time before the government establishes quotas that you have to accept that many or you cannot, they'll have your license revoked. That's only a matter of time before that happens, just economics. Um, and so there's a glut of practices out there on the market to be acquired and the hospitals are all gobbling them up and they have the pick of the litter and they're picking the ones that they want first that are higher quality and they're kind of letting the lesser, the lower quality practices languish and see if they're, if they'll fail altogether and then they can just simply hire the doctors. Um, but, uh, it's, it's very hard to sell a medical practice right now. What, and that is, is that across specialties? It is across specialties. Even ones that historically have done very well, like dermatology and plastic surgery and so forth. Uh, even their practices. Now they're, they're, the degree is less because you have more self-pay patients and so forth. Um, but the fact of the matter is, is that um, all of those, almost all practices across the board are, are worth less because it's just harder for them to make money with the compression of reimbursements and the, um, uh, and the increase in regulation in spite of the fact that we do have 10 million more people who are insured under, uh, under Obamacare that impact has been outweighed by the, uh, the regulation. Mm. And what about healthcare infrastructure? So healthcare IT is doing very well. And Atlanta uh, has become a hub for this, um, led, of course, by uh, McKesson being here. Um, but we're seeing a lot of healthcare IT, and in particular, um, data analytics, the next frontier that we're seeing in healthcare IT is not just recording information. We're kind of getting a handle on that, although I, I think we all still have to fill out too many forms by hand. We are all told by now that we weren't going to have to do that anymore. I now wonder what's going to come first, the flying car or the truly formless doctor's <laughs> office. We were promised flying cars by now. I'm glad they're not because it would be a disaster. The Atlanta, the, can you imagine the, the average Atlanta driver with a third dimension to deal with? <laughs> there, there would be mass catastrophe on the streets. Um, but, the, but once we're getting the data in, there's all kinds of interesting things that people want to know about patient satisfaction, about doctor efficiency, doctor effectiveness, therapeutic effectiveness. And we're only starting to scratch the surface of combining big data analytics with healthcare data gathering. And what about like hospitals and, and uh, yeah. So, you know, there's not a ton of hospital acquisition going around. So, you know, and because of that, when you don't have a lot of acquisition activity, it means you have a market that's not very efficient, not very liquid, and therefore it's volatile. So you know, probably on average it's kind of flat, but I think that's going to vary a lot from purchase to purchase. It's, it's hard to discern, uh, hard to discern a trend there. I think the long-term trend is going to increase because um, we're going to see a healthcare system that is centered more on hospitals and rather, and not so much on the individual doctor's office. Um, but that's a long-term trend, not a short-term trend. I wouldn't, I wouldn't rush to buy a hospital to flip it, for example, based on that. And so a number of our listeners are in professional services, and that's a big 
big part of the economy in general. So what about professional services? What are you seeing in terms of valuations there? Oh, I'm so glad you asked that. Um, professional services firms are really interesting from a valuation perspective. Um, you know, law firms merging, uh, accounting firms trying to merge. And, and we have this, this dynamic now where the, the baby boomers are hitting that age 60 to 70 area and they're trying to sell. The problem is nobody wants to buy them. Um, nobody no, wants to buy professional services firms. Not, not when the seller is that age. Okay. If you're selling at, at, at our age, um, at least I'll say my age in the mid forties, um, there are plenty of buyers because the buyer knows that I have 20 years of runway. There's plenty of time to transfer customer relationships. The personal goodwill can be transferred into company goodwill. And so therefore that's a good bet, right? But if you had a seller of an accounting firm, that wants out in a year or two and they just want to they just want to take a lump sum and go rent a condo in Costa Rica and live out their retirement days, it's just not gonna happen. I mean I I know for a fact accounting firms would love to buy other accounting firms, but the only ones that are for sale are the ones that have less than five years of runway left. So the the valuation trends like the rest of the market are up, but there's a bifurcation. If if you're at that age 60 level, or even really in your late 50s and you're trying to sell, you're already behind the eight ball from a valuation perspective if you don't have an internal successor. So what, sort of a learning point here, you're probably better off in trying to sell your firm when you're at that age. You're probably trying, you're better off trying to establish an internal succession plan so that they can work out a deferred compensation, maybe some kind of employee stock ownership program, something where there's an internal exit rather than an external exit. Because what's happening on the external exit, the buyers are saying, you know what, I'm just going to wait till you retire or die, and I'm going <laughs> to scoop up all of your, I've heard that conversation, I'm going to scoop up all of your customers. I'm, I'm 15 years younger than you, I can wait. Now, the interesting thing is, um, so I said valuations are up. In fact, I had a conversation with a CPA firm uh, two days ago. And I did notice that CPA firms uh, seem to be going up. Historically, they've been worth about one-half times annual revenue. Now it seems like, on average, they're about 0.8 to 0.9. So that's a, a big difference. But even with accounting, it, it, it really depends on what kind of business they're in. The tax firms do very well, and the ones a lot of consulting do very well. The ones that are heavy on audit are just god-awful. Audit is a terrible business. It is a low-margin High stress, high employee turnover, high risk business. Um, I don't know why anybody would want to even be in it except to generate business for the other practices of the firm. So audit firms are very hard are very hard to uh, to sell. Um, what about other professional services like you know marketing, uh, marcom, or consulting? Marketing firms are doing well, um, but uh, but again, and you're probably seeing something there depending on the nature of the revenue, right? If the, if the revenue if the revenue model is very transactional, somebody's paying you for a project and they go away and then they come back in three to four years, um, you know, again, you're probably looking at something like a 0.6 to 0.7 times revenue. If, on the other hand, you have blue chip clients, you have uh, established a mechanism to make sure those relationships are with the firm and not you as a principal, you can probably get one 1.1, 1.2 times revenue, um, possibly even more than that. Um, but I say that, and uh, I think that those metrics, although they're kind of the textbook way, if you open a valuation textbook, they would tell you that's how you should value firms. I think that's entirely wrong, and that's why the market for professional firms is so screwed up, 
because nobody's actually looking at the economics and figuring out how to value them correctly. What do you think is the right way? I think that a professional services firm is worth roughly the cost to replace its workforce, right? If I were going to buy your firm, and I don't know how many people you have, let's say you have 20 people in your firm, right? Why would I pay more for your firm than simply to recruit every single one of your employees along with their books of business? If you think that I'm a better recruiter, if I have a hiring process that you can't duplicate, then then I have something that would command that extra value. So I might pay for that process. Exactly right. And so um, so the, the value of the, of the professional services firm is not a revenue value. It's actually an asset value. It's the asset value of an in-place workforce, which we know how to value. It's done for audits all the time, and it's had no practical application until now. Um, and then second, whatever processes are in place that do make the firm more competitive, more compelling than its peer group. Um, uh, and then uh, third, um, uh, the nature of the business itself. What is this, what is this um, uh, business model? It's recurring revenue pattern. Hmm. So I want to turn the conversation a little bit to the other, uh, some other aspects of valuation. So uh, over the past few you know, months, we've been talking to CEOs a lot about what's driving value in their business or what's making them successful. And universally, everybody points to their team. Yep. So in the second segment of the show, we always talk about the team and, you know, these, you know, how, how people build great teams. So in your mind, as you're thinking about how CEOs value their companies and for those who are listening, how do you put place a value on, on the team and how does, how would you encourage CEOs to think about the value of their team? So I'm going to offer a very contrarian val uh, point here. Um, and I don't want it to be taken too extremely, but I do think it's important. There was a terrific article written, I think, in the winter, the quarterly winter issue of the Journal of Finance, one of the big academic journals, 50-page articles, lots of Greek letters, regressions, all kinds of things. But it's, it's a terrific article that says, which adds more value, the jockey or the horse, and pertain to startups. And the conclusion of that article basically is that the horse, i.e. the core business, is more valuable than the jockey. And the way that they tested this was that they looked at companies that had gone from startup to IPO, and they found that, that the companies that went from startup to IPO were more likely to have swapped out management teams multiple times, including Apple, by the way. Um, we forget that Steve Jobs was kicked out at one point. Um, that but somehow does get lost in the story a lot. Exactly right. And, and the Macintosh was the product of his startup called Next, basically, that he was working on during his four-year exile. Um, but the core technology, the core product of the company remained largely the same, right? So what does that, what does that tell us? What it tells us is that it does not tell us that management teams are not important. It does not say that. Management teams are extremely important. But I do think there's an, there's an appealing intuition or intuitiveness about that conclusion because if you take that jockey or the horse analogy, right, does a jockey make a horse go that much faster, right? What the jockey does, it prevents the horse probably from falling and breaking its leg and probably prevents, and probably prevents an average horse from falling behind the pack. But it doesn't make it the leading horse. At the end of the day, you got to have the fastest horse. You got to have the best business, the best market, the best processes. And if you have that, 
then you ought to be it ought to be able to have the potential to be successful as long as you put a marginally competent an average competence team in place because you have a great business. What the good management team does is that the good the management team manages downside. It manages the downside, it limits your downside risk. Because what a good management team is doing, is, is great at doing, is that when something gets screwed up, when a crisis happens, when something happens that you don't expect and it has a is threatening to your company, the great management team knows how to respond and basically get your chestnuts out of the fire when that occurs. And, and that's very valuable. That translates into how the markets work, particularly, in, and I know this isn't the, the, the direct subject here, but it's very important in venture capital and why historically venture capital returns in the last 20 years have not been very good, with the exception of the last year that started to come up is because investors will tell you every single time, I invest in management teams, right? Everybody says, I invest in man I invest in you. I don't care what your product is, I invest in you. Well, the empirical data suggests that's wrong. When you say, I invest in you, it's, what it's basically saying is, I'm investing to lower my risk. But a low risk is not the venture capital business, right? The venture capital business is high risk, high returns. So if the, the fundamental thesis is investing in management teams, whose main function is to manage risk, by definition, you're going to get low returns. So they're shooting themselves in the foot by, ha by going along with this, this baked-in paradigm of management teams. You know, management teams don't so much add value as they prevent value destruction. So this thing about, you know, I, I can give a management team, a great A management team, a C company, and they'll be successful versus giving, you know, a C company to... Uh, what is it? Yeah, it's, you know, taking an A company and giving it to a C management team and that company will fail. You're saying that that's not true. Uh, I think on average it's not true because, again, the, the management team of that first company is going to run up against the limitations of the company itself, the market. If it's a mediocre product, how well can a company, how, how well can a best management team sell a mediocre product in the marketplace? How much can they really do with that? But even if I got a management team that's eh, but I got a great product, right? I got a product that, that is a, a, cure, a for cancer. cure for cancer, government license to print money in my basement and it's legal tender, right? Even an average team can make something out of that. Well, I don't need a genius to make a great business out of that. I don't. The, the theory that I've heard, though, with the giving the a management team of C companies that they'll know how to pivot. Well, okay. Um, but again, do you, if, you, if you need to pivot, are you really fixing that with the management team? Couldn't you have done that with the management team you had in place? Well, the C management team wouldn't A, know how to pivot, or B, know what to pivot to. So then now, you, now what, you, what you're telling me is you had initially, you had a C management team and a C company. So I agree you're adding value by adding an A management team to a C company. But the li there are limitations to what that, that A management team can do, right? Mario Andretti can't win the Indianapolis 500 driving a Volkswagen Rabbit diesel. Just can't do it. Great. So then tell me why is it that you think every CEO that I've spoken to without exception says it's their management team that's made them successful? Because CEOs believe, and there may be some truth to this, they can't control the nature of the company. They can't control innovation. They can't control being brilliant. So why bother if you can't control being brilliant, right? 
every up until up until really a month and a half ago, everybody conceded the consumer electronics market and the consumer computer market to Apple, right? Only recently has Microsoft gotten up off the mat and presented a viable challenge. Really, until then, nobody's been a viable challenge to them because everybody has conceded the innovation point to them, right? Everybody's conceded more or less, except for Yahoo, they haven't gotten the memo. Everybody's conceded the search um, point and the monetization of the internet point to Google. Nobody's bothering. Everybody's just assuming that, well, we just can't innovate. We don't know how to control it. That, that innovation is somehow a random event. And if it's a random event, you can't manage it. Why bother? I can manage who my management team is. And so they, they, successful executives being type A personalities, by and large, and control freaks, they focus on the things they can most directly influence, can influence management teams and selection. But that innovation and, quote, the good company is simply a random, random occurrence. So if you were going to sit down and have this conversation with one of our CEO listeners who's in the middle market and educate them on how to build value in their company, um, and it's not their management team, where would you tell them to look? Well, I'd tell them to find what they think is an awesome company with a bad management team. That would be you know, the easiest place to make an acquisition is an undervalued asset where the management team is not doing a great job and therefore it's, it's obscuring the value of uh, potentially of a um, uh, of a much more valuable asset. The second is to think about um, what can you break? Where can you be disruptive? You know, when I hung up my own shingle two and a half months ago, it's been a very interesting journey of um, self-learning and learning what what am I good at? What am I lousy at? And and. Uh, why would anybody hire me to do evaluation as opposed to anybody else? There's some very good practitioners here in town across the country. What It's arrogant for me to hang out my own shingle and say that somebody should hire me instead of somebody else. Um, but I think the answer in any of those cases is to think about how do you innovate, how do you differentiate? And I think too many companies concede the commoditization story. Right, like if you're in a commodity, if you're actually making a commodity, great. Go ahead and concede that. I'm I'm not going to argue with you. But in professional services, I saw I see it in accounting. People just say, "Well, accounting is a commodity." No, it's not. There are good accountants. There are lousy accountants. <laughs> there are accountants who are smart and can provide good business advice. There are ones that shouldn't advise people on how to run a lemonade stand, right? But people, I, I think the companies that can see commoditization are the ones that wind up being mediocre and set that and therefore set their high maximum potential as mediocrity. So getting back to the question you actually asked, for the mid-market CEO that's looking to, bad, to, to build value, lock yourself in a room, lock yourself and your management team in a room, lock some of the craziest people that you know in a room and get the craziest ideas out there and brainstorm. Have a couple of beers while you do it if you want to, whatever it takes. That there are no dumb ideas, and 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 think about how you can innovate, and then create a culture that says um, that celebrates failure in innovation. That you're going to reward the person who's willing to step out there and try to make something happen more than the person who never tries, but they just sort of keep on keeping on. And what about if somebody wants to pursue some sort of an organic growth strategy? For whatever reason, they don't want to do an acquisition. So, the organic, again, the organic growth strategy, I think, needs to be through 
innovation. I mean, look, there are lots of ways you can do it. You can throw money at the problem, right? You want to you hire more salespeople. You want more sales channels. By all means, throw money at the problem. Um, chances are that that's going to be kind of like pushing string. If, if you really want to grow organically, then give people a reason to buy your stuff other than uh, rather than your competitions. That's differentiation, that's innovation, and that's stepping out and creating identity and a willingness to be wrong and a celebration again of trying and, and the failure. That's, you, know, you look at Google's secret sauce, they celebrate failure and they are not afraid to put a bullet in something when it's not working, right? Remember Google Glass is going to take over? Like we were supposed to, two years ago, we would have had this whole thing with Google Glass and those silly things over our eyes and uh, we all would have looked like new age pirates basically, right? Haven't heard a thing of that since. They killed it. That's okay. They didn't kill everybody. They didn't fire everybody who was on the Google Glass team. They said, okay, here's another thing I want you to work on. Yeah. Well, no, Google Glass. I'm glad Google, Google Glass went away. Tell me, it sounds a lot like, you know, these things that you're elucidating um, to help with organic growth sound a lot like strategy, right? Which is what I, what I do. And tell me where you think um, strategic planning fits into all of this. Well, um, you're more of a strate- uh, uh, strategist than I am. I'm more of a tactician. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, I, I, think, I think strategy is all about identifying first what is a what are plausible market opportunities? Right, I'm a big baseball fan, and Ty Cobb, the Georgia Peach, was famous for saying, "Hit them where they ain't." Right, and somebody else wrote a book about blue oceans and red oceans. Right, you don't I forget who it was, but you don't want to be in the red ocean because that's hyper competitive and everybody's in there, and you're going to be bumping up against everybody. You want to find out what that blue ocean is. Well, strategy in my mind is all about finding blue ocean. It's all about finding the holes in the defense, right? Taking what the defense gives you to use a basketball analogy. Um, uh, so, so step one is taking a look at, at the market and just thinking about stuff. You know, Steve Jobs is famous for the what if, and he is a guy I do idolize, um, <laughs> but, but for different reasons other, than other people do. Um, uh, but he was great at just saying what if. You know, and a leader that loves to say, what if we did this? And like, and having the security say, you know what, this is a dumb idea. Let's kill it. My idea is a dumb idea. Um, that leads to great companies. That leads to organic growth because, you know, ideas, ideas are precious. Nobody else necessarily comes up with the same idea that you do, right? In the 1890s, they thought they're going to have to shut down the patent office because, Somebody actually thought everything that could have been thought of had been thought of, right? Well, here we are 150 years later, and, and we're, we're in good shape. Um, organic, organic growth, once you reach into a market that actually competes with you and notices you, is all about innovation and coming up with ideas. Have you a thought on how much more companies that actually have a good strategy generate in value than those that don't? I mean, I would be, I'm very interested to see if there's something that quantifies the value of a good strategy. I think where that value comes from is in growth and margins. Um, you know, revenue is not necessarily the be all and end all. We, we, we like to think of revenue as revenue because revenue means we have low risk. But, you know, revenue that generates low margins is... Work. It's so moribund. It's work with no money. Yeah, I mean, why, why would, <laughs> why would you want to do that? Yeah, right? it makes it makes no sense. Um, 
so a, a solid strategy will express itself, you know, the, will express itself in the terms of growth and margins. And if you have both of those well, both of those in good shape, the market is telling you that your strategy, your strategy is doing well. And one of my favorite pieces, I, I, um, I send this to people all the time. Um, a guy named Simon Sinek wrote a book called Start With Why. And he gave this wonderful TEDx talk on it um, back in 1998. Mm -hmm. And it's still out there on YouTube. And his central thesis is people don't buy what you do. They buy why you do it. Right? They enroll in, they enroll and engage with you on an emotional level because you just sort of get it. Right? And a strategy that is, that is built around innovation and understanding why people, why you do what you do, not to make money, that's a result, right? But what is it that drives you to do what you do? What is your mission? What is your purpose in being in that business? And it's not just to be a, a soul-sucking leech on society that, that's turning somebody else's income into your profit, right? Understanding why is such a critical part of formulating strategy, and it's really hard. It took me months to figure out why do what I do that didn't sound stupid and every day I still and, and then every day I go back and oh, that still sounds stupid so I'm still kind of kind of of um uh working working with that but once you figure out the why the strategy comes to you like a like a, a an epiphany basically because the why then th there's almost no choice you have to do what the why is telling you to do mm-hmm so if uh, CEO listeners are interested in finding out more about valuing, how to think of value and value in their companies, where would you recommend that they go? Um, recommend that they go for just more information. For more information. So, um, well, I, I would hope that they would sign up for my mailing list at arpeggioadvisors.com. Um, starting next month, I promise I'm going to start a newsletter called Valuation Improvisation. And it is a, a continuation of a newsletter I had with my former employer where we, where I would dissect, um, how M&A transactions get valued or how, how value is thought of. So I, I, I did a piece on Apple buying Beats Audio and how they get to a $3 billion valuation or how did Steve Ballmer get to a $2 billion valuation on the Clippers or <clears throat> why is Dan Snyder not thrilled about putting a bullet in the Redskins trademark? Right. And the answer is that it's a two million dollar asset that would cost him twenty million dollars to replace. So why would he do that? He's not he's not just a raven lunatic, he's actually a business person. So I'm gonna start doing those again in uh, um in November. I'm deciding if I'm either gonna talk about Uber and how it gets to a the fifty billion dollar valuation, or I may do the uh, uh the Anheuser Busch Miller deal because I like beer and beer is cool. So that'll be a fun one to do as well. Very good. So if people want to get in touch with you to hear more about anything that they've heard today, how can they do that? So Mike at Arpeggio, A-R-P-E-G-G-I-O, advisors.com, or they can follow my twiddle, uh, twiddle. That too. <laughs> can we say that on the internet? Uh, my Twitter <laughs> handle at at unblakable.com. Great. Thanks so much for a great show, Mike. Thank you for having me. This show is brought to you by Anona Enterprises, where strategy is your access to money and performance. Learn more at anonaenterprises.com.